All right, we're in the Gospel of Matthew, as most of you know, we're studying through Matthew. We're in chapter 26, and the text we have for this morning is verses 30 through 46. So Matthew 26, verses 30 through 46. The topic, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus lets us know he is determined to go to the cross in perfect submission to the will of his Father, the title of our message, The Victory Garden. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we appreciate every opportunity we have to get into your word. There's no telling, Lord, how long such a privilege will last. It's unusual, Lord, in our world. In most places, Lord, many places at least, where there is huge populations, the word of God is at a premium. And so we thank you. I pray that it would get into us, Lord, that it would refresh, encourage, bless, inspire us, that we would be about the business of the kingdom of God, sharing Christ with others. Help us as we work through this text, Lord, to be those that have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying. We pray in Jesus' name and those who agree said, amen. Was it a harmless prank or would you commit, uh, consider it misdemeanor battery? Workers at Intel in Albuquerque secretly taped a kick me sign to the back of a coworker as a prank. Then they kicked the confused man a number of times as fellow employees laughed hysterically. The employee said that once he suspected something was taped on his back, he went to a senior staffer to ask, is there something taped on my back? The staffer promptly kicked him three times in the buttocks. The employee felt demoralized and assaulted and he began to cry during his drive home. He initially could not tell his wife because he was so embarrassed and ashamed. And that man is here today. No, he's not, I'm sorry. Two of the prankers were convicted of petty misdemeanor battery. They were ordered to perform 16 hours of community service and they both lost their jobs. In another story, a New York City elementary school suspended a fourth grade student for taping a kick me sign on another student's back. When I was a kid, we'd alternate between kick me and kiss me. There was that time, you know, when you didn't want to be kissed by girls, oh. Kids and adults who act like them are just mean. You may not have a kick me sign taped to your back, but some days it seems like you do. You seem to be a target for all kinds of abuse and trouble out in the world. In fact, if you're a Christian, you are targeted by the devil and the non-believers he has taken captive to do his will. It's a good thing you're simultaneously safeguarded by Jesus. While most of what happens in our text is unique to the 11 disciples, there is this general principle of being targeted as well as simultaneously safeguarded. Let's see if we can make some sense of it. I'm gonna organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, Jesus said it was because of him you'd be targeted. And number two, Jesus said it was because of him that you'd be safeguarded. Let's take a look first of all in verses 30 through 35 at being targeted. Now we're down to the final 24 hours leading up to the crucifixion. Judas left the upper room to betray Jesus. The Last Supper was instituted. The Lord and his boys headed out to spend the night under the stars on the Mount of Olives. Verse 30, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. It was not unusual for Jews visiting Jerusalem for the Passover or other festivals for that matter to spend the night outdoors, uh, essentially camping. Jesus was headed for their regular spot, and Judas was too. There weren't hotels, motels, things like that, and so they would find uh, relatively uh, secluded places where they could just hang out and sleep. And so verse 31, then Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. 
For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Uh, It's a quote from the Old Testament prophet Zechariah, it's chapter 13, verse seven. The eye is referring to God, the shepherd is Jesus, the flock are his 11 disciples. Make no mistake about it, the events leading up to and including Jesus' death on the cross were not an afterthought. They were necessary. Jesus says what's about to happen, especially to you guys, is prophesied. Jesus had to die because it was not morally possible for God to atone for sin and redeem lost men and women apart from the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross. The shepherd must be struck, he must be killed. Momentarily, Judas would come with the Roman soldiers and the 11 would indeed be scattered as they all ran from the situation. Now what does it mean that they would be made to stumble? Well, after all is said and read, it comes down to this. The arrest, the trials, and the crucifixion of Jesus would shake these men to the very foundation of their faith. Think of it like this. Although Jesus had told them repeatedly that he must die at the hands of the religious leaders, the 11 either ignored him or they misunderstood him. They were certain he was going to inaugurate the kingdom of heaven on the earth in which they would play a major role and hold positions of honor. A stricken shepherd was not part of their equation. It would seem to them as if Jesus were not powerful enough to perform what he had promised them he was going to perform. Now isn't that similar to the problem most people, including Christians, struggle with. If God is so powerful, why all my suffering? Why doesn't God do something? So this is the sense of stumbling that these guys were going to get into. With perfect hindsight, we see that God was doing something. In fact, he was doing everything. He was defeating sin and death so men could be forgiven their sins and receive eternal life. If we had hindsight of our own lives, we'd see something similar. Of course, we don't and we can't, but we can walk by faith, believing God is the same today as he was then. We we suffer because uh, we don't see our own future. But we can trust the future that God has laid out for us. And we are in no more danger of being abandoned by God than uh, these disciples were. It's, it's just that we get frustrated and we, we, we want to know why terrible things happen when God could uh, keep us from them. And, and I agree, it's a real struggle, but with hindsight, which we will have one day when we're with the Lord, it will all make sense. It doesn't need to make sense now. That's why we walk by faith and not by sight. Now I wanna call our attention to three words in this text, easy to overlook, but very powerful. They are the words, because of me. Jesus was assuming the responsibility for them being scattered. It wasn't because they lacked faith, or some such thing as that. No, it was all on him, because of me. He said, look, you guys, you're gonna be scattered tonight and made to stumble because of me. Think of it this way. If a shepherd was out in the fields tending his flock, he was attacked, let's say, by a cougar and killed, what would we expect his sheep to do? Would we expect them to rally and present a strong defense against the cougar? 
Sean, you go over here. Lamb Chop, you go over here. Those are the only two famous sheep I could think of. Maybe there's others. Sean the sheep, Lamb Chop. Who remembers Lamb Chop? Oh, classic. All right, I'll talk to you guys. But anyway, no, you wouldn't expect that. You'd expect them to run and scatter because the shepherd was everything to them. He was their sole protection. He was the focus of their flock. And so this isn't a rebuke. Jesus isn't gonna say, ah, man, I wish you guys wouldn't scatter. He says, no, you're gonna scatter because of me, because I'm going to be struck and because you're a follower of me. It was full of emotion. He had put a target on their backs, as it were, and it didn't say kick me or kiss me, it said kill me. Today, we too are targeted. Jesus told us that since the world hated him, it would hate us just as much. In such a world, we can expect persecution. Do you realize it is unusual for believers not to be persecuted? It is the exception rather than the norm. Historically and around the world right now, it is the exception, the norm is for Christians to be persecuted. Now, I'm not saying we don't suffer persecution in the United States. There's some things that you've been tracking in the news, you know, about the thing in Houston where pastors are being subpoenaed and um, other things like that. There's, there's a, a battle going on, but I, I don't know that I think it's risen to the area of persecution yet. Nobody's been put in jail for what I can tell. I'm not looking forward to it. But, you know, the, the real persecution hasn't really come. And for that, we're blessed. And I'm not, not anxious to get into it. It's just unusual. It is normal. It is the normal Christian life for Christians to be persecuted because they are hated because Jesus is hated. This is what our shepherd told us. But since it is because of him, we rejoice when we're treated badly because somebody noticed. Do you ever wonder... You know, you go to work tomorrow or maybe today or whenever you go to work and you think, man, does anybody even know I'm a Christian? Am I making a difference? Hey, when they throw you in jail, hey, somebody noticed. <laughs> Praise the Lord. So just be careful how you pray. Verse 32, after I've been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Besides being certain that death would not hold him and that he would rise from the dead, conquering death as well as sin, and that's important. I mean, I can't imagine it, but you might envision a, a somebody being able to die in your place, conquering sin, but he also conquered death itself. These words contain an incredible promise for the 11 and for all of us as believers. It is a rock-solid promise that all 11 guys would be regathered after Jesus rose from the dead. They'd be scattered submitted or stumbled rather to various degrees, reduced to a sort of hopelessness, but hope there was in abundance in these words of Jesus. No matter how hopeless your situation may get, no matter how helpless you become, the Lord has promised to gather you to himself and to regather all of his church together to always be with him. I don't know what you're going through right now or what you might go through in your life. Uh, and, and there are times, let's be honest, I think sometimes we, we suffer because we're not honest with each other. Sometimes your, your situation more than seems hopeless. It, it, it is hopeless apart from your hope in Jesus Christ and the fact that when you're absent from your body, which is suffering and breaking down or whatever, you will be present with the Lord and that one day we will be reunited with him in, in, in heaven. So we're never without hope, but a lot of what people go through in this life is hopeless if this life is all that you have. 
Now, these guys didn't really hear this promise. They objected, verse 33. Peter answered and said to him, even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. And Jesus said to him, assuredly I say to you that this night, before the rooster crows, you're gonna deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you, and so said all the disciples. Now we'll talk about the rooster's crowing when it happens. For now, concentrate on Peter and all the disciples thinking there was no way they could stumble. Peter was gonna find out, by the way, that it was it may be easier to die for Christ than it is to live for him. Uh, he was willing, he pulled his sword out, he was willing to die, but it was hard to live. We sometimes, perhaps most of the time, use this word stumble to describe falling into sin. What I'm talking about today from this text is a different kind of stumbling. I've already mentioned it. It's more like doubt of the Lord and of his word on account of the tribulation that you are suffering. It's a why God or where is God kind of stumbling where your life is going along and then bam, something hits and you realize God could have kept you out of your trouble rather than letting you go through it. And it's, it's a struggle, it's a, and you stumble because there's that part of you that says, Lord, why? If, if you filtered this, really? You thought this was okay? How does it help, though, to turn your back on God during that time? Because that's the average non-believer says, hey, I, I can't believe in God because they're suffering. And so I don't want to have anything to do with God. So now you're just going to suffer alone without reason, without even the hope of an answer to that question. At least with the Lord, we can have a theology of suffering. We can offer what they call a theodicy, which is a, a reason for why there is suffering. We can explain to people that it's not God's fault and that he's done more than everything to deal with it, that he sent his own son to die and rise from the dead. His own son who is forever now the God-man bearing in his body the marks of his crucifixion to save a lost race of people. So how does it help to turn our back on God when he is the only source of hope? It doesn't help. Instead, we need to look full in his wonderful face. Look at Jesus who suffered for you and who promises to never, ever leave you or forsake you. Now, the second thing we'll look at this morning, Jesus said it was because of him you'd be safeguarded. In the Gospel of John, Jesus prays to his father for his disciples before they leave the upper room to go to the Mount of Olives. He says to his father, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept. None of them is lost except the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. That's a reference to Judas, who we saw last week wasn't a believer. Uh, and so Jesus says, I've kept all the believers safe. But now I come to you, he says, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I don't pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. And so Jesus is asking his father to safeguard the 11 disciples, and he's not asking just for them because in verse 20 he says, I do not pray for these alone, but for all those who will believe in me through their word. And so it's very simple. Jesus says, hey, these 11 guys, I kept them safe. Now I'm gonna die and rise from the dead. I'll be in heaven shortly. 
they and their disciples after them, all Christians after them, Father, I'm asking you to safeguard them because the evil one seeks to rob and kill and destroy. And so let's talk about God safeguarding us. We already know it doesn't mean we will never suffer. It seems to mean that we will, or at least we can be, always victorious in our suffering. Take Peter, for example. In the Gospel of Luke, we read, the Lord said, Peter, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. What a, I wish we could just talk about that all morning. He says, I've prayed your faith will not fail. And when you return to me, because guess what? Peter is gonna fail, then you will strengthen your brethren. What, a, what an amazing prayer. Peter was gonna be sifted. He was the target of the enemy. Jesus' prayer would safeguard Peter. He would return and he would serve, strengthening the brethren. One commentator put it this way. He says, imagine this. Satan has a big sieve with jagged-edged wires forming a mesh with holes shaped like faithless men and women. What he aims to do is throw people into the sieve and shake them around over jagged edges until they're so torn and weak and desperate that they let go of their faith and fall through the sieve as faithless people, right into Satan's company. Faith cannot fall through the mesh. It's the wrong shape. And so as long as the disciples hold to their faith, trusting the power and goodness of God for their hope, then they will not fall through the mesh into Satan's hands we're going to be sifted, but we are safeguarded by God and can always be victorious. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. Now I approach this section in the story with real caution. One commentator duly noted, no man can rightfully expound this passage. It is a subject for prayerful, heartbroken meditation more than for human language to describe. Gethsemane means oil press. It's appropriate as this was the Mount of Olives and as Jesus was going to be pressed and stressed prior to the cross. Jesus strategically leaves eight disciples near the entrance. He takes three others a little bit further and then he positions himself uh, in another location. From an aerial map, it looks like a battle strategy uh, and, and you know we're not gonna read anything more than that into it except that Je Jesus had an idea of what he was doing in his spiritual warfare. Verse 37, he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. He began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. The two sons of Zebedee, James and John. These three were a sort of inner circle. They often witnessed events the other disciples were not privileged to. They were there on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus when Moses and Elijah appeared to him. They were there when Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. We shouldn't assume they were more spiritual or that they had earned these positions. God chose them for the service and that's it, period. You look at these guys, you think, well now John, John seemed to be a real spiritual dude, right? I mean, you read his gospel, uh, he's all in the heavenlies, you read his epistles, he's all about love. I mean, if you... Probably if we took a poll and, and we said, who's the most spiritual disciple, John would win out. But then there was Peter, who everybody always makes fun of. You know, I've, I've heard all the jokes, Peter had foot and mouth disease, ah, you know, that kind of thing. He was always, he, just a, a few seconds ago, he said something incredibly dumb. 
Jesus said, you're gonna you know, deny me and, and, and or you're all gonna be scattered. He says, not me. And he goes, well, yeah, actually, you're gonna be the worst. You know, so it wasn't because they were the most spiritual. Oh, why am I telling you that? Because you don't advance in the kingdom of God by being more spiritual. You wanna be more spiritual because that's your walk with the Lord. But God doesn't look down and say, I'm looking for a few spiritual people. And if you're the most spiritual, I will reward you. If you have that kind of thinking, it, it, you're gonna, gonna be all wrong. God wants to use everybody. He wants you to be spiritual for your own sake. And there's not a competition. If you're chosen to a place of service, it's because of that. God chose you to it. Billy Graham, is he the most spiritual man in America? Is that why God used him so mightily? I don't think so. Now, you and I, though, we're never gonna be Billy Graham, probably. I've given up hope of being Billy Graham. Does that mean I'm not very spiritual? Well, I can't use myself. I'm not very spiritual. But anyway, some of you guys, do you understand what I'm talking about? We, we spend so much time worrying about other people and, and the kingdom of God is not a place where you advance by you know, taking more classes in spirituality. You, you're spiritual because that's what you ought to be. You're to pursue holiness for its own sake uh, and your walk with the Lord. And so think about you and the Lord. Let him choose who he wants to use for what. It'll save you a lot of uh, problem when you get overlooked for something, thinking that you're more spiritual than that guy. You know, a lot of times God, and I don't want to encourage you to be unspiritual, but sometimes God chooses people just to blow people's minds. You look at somebody and you say, really, that guy? Okay, Lord, you must know what you're doing. Now, I'm told these last words uh, in this verse, verse 37, sorrowful and deeply distressed, are among the strongest words in the Greek language to express a depth of emotion. And we're not gonna touch on it very much because Matthew doesn't really. Uh, you know, we're not gonna try and, and draw out how sad and distressed Jesus was, but know that at, in his humanity, he was stressed and, and this was overwhelming him. Have you ever been hit like that with a wave of emotion? Been overcome to a point where you almost can't function? Jesus was. And you think, well, wait a minute, Jesus was God. Yeah, but he was fully human at the same time. And it just rolled over him. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. Stay here and watch with me. Have you ever muttered the words, I feel like I'm gonna die? You mean that you feel awful emotionally. You feel beat up and left for dead spiritually. Have you ever been around someone else who felt that way? If you have, you certainly wanted to help them. You wanted to encourage them. You wanted to strengthen them. You probably didn't know what to do or say. Jesus, in essence, tells you what a person in that state needs more than anything else for others to watch with the sufferer. As the scene unfolds, we'll see a little bit more about what that means. Verse 39, he went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, oh, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Here's what the person intensely suffering ought to do. Pray, falling on his or her face, seeking the Lord for relief or for the resolve of accepting his will. What should you do? You should just watch with them. We always want to do something to help people. I know sometimes if you're, a lot of you have been in this situation where even though you're not a pastor or a chaplain, you're maybe the most 
uh, religious person at, you know, in your family or at the, at the place. And, and so you become kind of a lightning rod for other people who all tell you what you should be doing to help the person who's suffering. How many times you should be visiting them and you should bring them meals and you should do this and you should do that. And it's all because we, we want to help people and sometimes there's really nothing, you, you annoy people. I had a, a lady in the church, you're gonna laugh at this, but it's true, she was dying of cancer. And she called me up and she said, you know this one sister, I dearly love her, but please ask her to quit visiting me. She's driving me crazy, wanting me to do things and help me with it. And I find myself ministering to her, I just wanna die without this annoyance. <laughs> and uh, it's funny, but it's not funny. Because we want to do something and, and the Lord says, just, just be someone. Just say, hey, I, I'm here for you. If you want something great, if you don't want something great, I, I'll be here for you tomorrow. I'm not gonna judge you. I, I don't have any opinion about this. If you wanna say some crazy stuff, we'll work that out later. I'm just, I'm with you. I'm praying for you. And, and, and you know, even if you're gonna challenge God's love for you, I don't need to defend him because we all know he loves you. I'm just here for you. Now, regarding Jesus' prayer, it establishes that there was no other way for God to forgive sin and save the human race. Jesus, as the God-man, must drink the cup, which is a picture from the Old Testament to describe God's wrath against sin. This is why all other religions and philosophies should offend you as a Christian. Because they propose a way of getting right with God that ignores the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And they essentially say, you can be a Christian and believe that God sent his son to die a criminal's death, a shameful death, and you can be saved. Or we have 15 good works you can do and you can be saved. And that is offensive to the cross of Jesus Christ. People say the cross is offensive because on it a man died and it's bloody. That's what's offensive is to ignore the cross because it costs God his son. And there was a great deal of suffering that went into it. But there's no other way for the human race to be made right with God. Jesus was determined to go to the cross here in Gethsemane, he decided he definitely would. One commentator said, not your will but mine changed paradise to desert and brought man from Eden to Gethsemane. Now, not my will but yours brings anguish to the man who prays it, but transforms the desert into the kingdom and brings man from Gethsemane to the gates of glory. Verse 40, then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, what? Could you not watch with me one hour? Now before we form an opinion, something Luke says in his gospel should be remembered. He says that their eyes were heavy from sorrow. Jesus had just told them some disturbing things. One of them would betray him. He was leaving them. They would all fall away and Peter is gonna deny him. They weren't sleeping as the result of normal weariness at the end of the day, but because they had been rocked by care. It's also been suggested that there were evil forces at work here, what we would call a demonic attack. Makes sense that Satan would want to hinder the prayers of the disciples in order to try to undermine the decision of Jesus to obey his father. I don't know how things work in the demon world, but you know, when Satan hears Jesus, and I mean, you can be confident Satan was on the scene. When he hears Jesus tell his disciples to watch, 
I'm sure he's got some sand men, you know, that, hey, we need to put those guys asleep because the weaker Jesus is, the more opportunity we have to end this thing the way that we want it to end. I'm not making excuses for Peter, James, and John, only pointing out that praying is work and it's warfare. Verse 41, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Flesh is more than the physical body getting tired. It is the propensity we find within us to fulfill our physical needs in sinful ways. It is our bent towards sin. Again, this was more than mere tiredness after a long day. This was warfare. In actual warfare, you don't want to be asleep when the assault comes, and neither can you afford to slack off in spiritual warfare. Notice, too, that even though the disciples praying could have comforted Jesus, he was concerned for them. He doesn't say, hey, guys, I need you to pray for me so that I can overcome temptation. No, he says, you guys need to pray because temptation is coming to you. And here it means testing. A test, a trial was coming. They needed to be ready to meet it head on. Again, a second time he went and prayed saying, oh, Father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. He changes his prayer a little. He acknowledges the cup cannot pass away. He must drink it. The wages of sin is death. Jesus would die as substitute for every member of the human race that sin might be forgiven, that we might have eternal life. There is no other way to deal with sin than for mankind to be saved. And he came and found them asleep again for their eyes were heavy. He checked on them again. Are you the kind of person who would constantly check on a baby to make sure he or she is awake? Probably not. I'm like that, though. I'm, I, I am terrified of babies. There's nothing more terrifying in all the world than a baby. I don't, I, the puke doesn't bother me. The pooping doesn't bother me. That's all par for the course. But a sleeping baby, that terrifies me. And so I sneak into their rooms and I poke them. <laughs> I want to see them move because I'm just, I'm afraid. Maybe, I, you know, I think I have... PTSD from seeing a lot of uh, crib death or SIDS, whatever they call it now, and stuff. But I, and so I poke. Then I have to get out of there when they start to cry so that their parents or my wife doesn't know, but she knows. She goes, were you in there poking the baby? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> but at least he's alive. Yeah, but we need to get some sleep. You sleep. I will watch, you know, it's just, it's, so Jesus, in a sense, is poking his disciples. He's, hey, are you guys asleep? Wake up, you guys. Verse 44, so he left them, he went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Watch, pray, it seems so simple, but it proves so hard. When the soldiers come to arrest Jesus, Peter's gonna draw his sword and cut off a guy's ear. It's easier to wield a sword than it is to yield to the sword of the spirit. We always wanna think we're doing something, Watching and praying don't seem to us to be as important as doing something, but they are far more important. Verse 45, then he came to his disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour's at hand. Son of man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. From one perspective, you'd have to say the disciples had failed. They had been in a spiritual skirmish. They had been overcome by the flesh and by whatever demonic forces were at work. When Jesus seemed to need them the most, their own needs took priority. When they could have been ministering to Jesus, he had to minister still to them. Now the Lord wakes them and leads them into the mouth of a roaring lion. 
They're gonna be scattered just as he predicted. But all will nonetheless be safeguarded. They will be regathered, none of them will be lost, they are safe, spiritually speaking. You and I will face the roaring lion, the devil, as he goes about seeking whom he may devour. We will be readier for some troubles than we will for others. Can you name some trials that you went through? Piece of cake. And then all of a sudden you get knocked down in a way that you can't even imagine. We'll all have varying degrees of spiritual success and failure. We don't like to admit it. Sometimes people say, how was was it in that trial? I said, I failed miserably. But the Lord saved me. We will sometimes sleep when we ought to be awake and aware, watching and praying. Through it all, remember these words of Jesus, John 17, 15, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. Our Heavenly Father will keep us, he will safeguard us, we can break through to victory even after failure. Make no mistake, we will not be kept from trouble or testing. Because of Jesus, we will have kill me targets taped to our backs, but as we watch and pray, we are reminded that all our enemies have been defeated. Our sin was atoned for by Jesus' death, and we receive in its place his righteousness. Death was defeated on the cross, and we expect to be raptured without ever dying. If we die prior to the rapture, we're immediately absent from our bodies and present with the Lord in heaven. The devil may roar, but we can resist him when he tempts us, and we need not fall into temptation, but he must flee from us. If his roaring is to bring persecution and suffering, we can endure that by the sustaining grace of God. Targets who are safeguarded unto spiritual victory. If you have some failure in your life, in your past, or even right now, Jesus prayed for you that your faith would not fail and that you would return to him. And so don't let that keep you from going fully forward with the Lord. If you're in the middle of trials, think of all these things. If you're in between trials, just know that it's coming. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. The Lord has overcome the world. We're in the world, subject to attack, but we'll always be safeguarded. Let's pray.